encourage you to uh, grab your Bibles and to open them up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're uh, going to kind of take a detour. Before we launch back into our series in the book of Acts uh, next week, this morning we have the opportunity to enter into the series that we've kind of been kind of jumping in and out of throughout the year. We've called it Transformed, and uh, the idea is learning to think biblically about certain topics. And this morning we want to think biblically, specifically about leadership, and more specific than that, the leadership of the church known as elders. The Word of God has much to say about this topic, and it's crucial for us to understand um, how God gives elders to the church, why he gives them to the church, and what their purpose is in the life of the church. And though there is so much content we could be covering and so much depth we could get into, this is going to be almost a high-level flyover. Uh, we're going to be touching on a number of different passages this morning. But my mind went to, and I began to think about this topic of elders, my mind immediately, as we've been going to the book of Acts, there's a number of touch points in the book of Acts where elders are highlighted uh, or, or there's appointing forward to future elders. And I thought specifically of Acts chapter 16, when the Apostle Paul goes into Leicester and Derbe and he finds this young man, Timothy, who's thought well of from the neighboring towns and villages, this young man, Timothy, he's known for his godliness, he's known for his leadership capacity and potential already, and Paul, the great Apostle Paul, the leader amongst leaders, grabs a hold of this young man and he will take him and disciple him, and we know from the passage that as he takes this young man, Paul has the future health of the church in mind. And as the ministry is spread across the backs of more than one leader, we know the Word of God is teaching us, even in that very passage, that the church is being strengthened and growing in health because of that. The Word of God tells us that God calls and gifts men to lead in a plurality, a group to lead the church of Jesus Christ. And in fact, one of the things that I was thinking of when I thought of Timothy was that Timothy, Paul would groom him to be such a strong, healthy leader that he would eventually send him off to a church that Paul himself planted in the city of Ephesus. Paul would later write a letter to this city, and in this letter where Timothy was the pastor, he wrote these words. He said that after Jesus Christ had conquered, and he had ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. It says that he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. He gave to the church gifts. And two of these gifts, or one of these gifts really, is shepherds or teachers. And that term shepherd is translated all throughout the Bible also as pastor. The Bible uses three terms to really identify one primary role of leadership in the church, elder, pastor, or overseer. They're all meaning the same thing in one sense. They all talk about the same role, the same individual. So I'll be using those terms interchangeably throughout the course of this morning's message. But here we see that one of the primary gifts God has given to the church is shepherds who function as teachers within the context of the local church. Jesus Christ himself is the chief shepherd. He is the chief leader. But what we see throughout scripture is that he commissions individuals to fulfill these functions on his behalf. God call, calls a plurality of godly men to do this, and they are called elders within the context of the local church. And since elders carry on Christ's ministry to the church, it's imperative that we understand who they are, what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. And I want to begin this morning by answering that first question, why do they do it? What is the prime motivation 
in this role of leadership within the church. First, let's look at the elder's role, which is this. Essentially, when you boil it all down, it is to love the flock. It's to love the flock. And 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 13 highlights this. As I said, God calls certain men in the life of the church to a specific task. And it is a calling. It's not something that people simply get to choose. It's something that God calls men to in the life of the church. It's not specifically or just a role. It is a task. The task is to be a shepherd or a teacher. And the underlying motivation for this task is driven by love. And that should come as no surprise to any of us. In one sense, love is the underlying motive for all Christian living and for all Christian service. Jesus Christ himself said that the greatest commandment of all was, to paraphrase, to love God and to love others. The New Testament employs a number of different descriptions and pictures to amplify the work of the elder or pastor. And here what we see in 1 Thessalonians 2 is the apostle Paul is writing to the church. He uses the imagery of a mother and a father to describe the disposition of an elder, the kind of heart that they have towards the church of Jesus Christ. It's the imagery of parental love. And I wanna read this section beginning at verse seven and uh, look at it briefly with you. Look at verse seven with me. Paul writes these words. He says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So, catch these words, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not burden, be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I love that Paul chooses the imagery of a, a mother and a father because we all, in a sense, have the, the, the concept of parental love, and, and in some senses, we grasp what that means, and Paul is intending for us to grasp the meaning there, that imagery implying this picture of love. Don't you catch those, those loving words that we were affectionately desirous of you, that giving of self like a parent to a child? The imagery of parental love reminds us of a love that is not always, listen, easy. It is often dismissed, it is unseen, and sometimes it is even resented. It can be a gentle love of a mother and sometimes a tough, disciplining love of a father. It is always meant for the well-being and building up of the child. And here we see in such beautiful language the display of love being presented to the church from an elder, in one sense, of the church, Paul the Apostle. And love of the flock is so critical. It is hard work. It is challenging work. People are often unlovely. Every one of us was saved when we were unlovely. And here we 
can glean a few things from the Apostle Paul in terms of how to love the flock and how to love one another. And this really applies across the board as we are called as a body to love one another. You see, love is cultivated, I believe, from a a number of different ways. I'll just draw out a few from this text. The first one is this. It's cultivated when we know each other deeply. When we know each other deeply. I love that in verse 7, Paul explicitly says that we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That picture of being affectionately desirous. Like a nursing mother spending time and understanding the needs and cares and concerns and eventually as they grow, there's different circumstances of a child's life. So Paul expresses his love by knowing others deeply, by caring intimately for them, by seeking to understand their struggles and trials, the things that burden their heart, the things that they long for. It's a beautiful picture of how we can cultivate love in the flock, and elders are called to know deeply if they are to love the flock. Secondly, notice this, they're called to give generously. There is no such thing as biblical love that does not involve a giving of self. Love as the world sees it in many ways is foreign to what the Bible displays as love. This idea of giving generously of yourself is all throughout the scripture. It is the kind of love that God displays in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For God gave his only son because he loved the world. To parent well, as many of you know, is to pour yourself into the life of your child. To have children is a sacrifice. And to parent properly is to give of yourself regularly, to give of yourself daily, to pour your life into that little life, to help fashion and mold them, to not withhold yourself from them. So too it is to lead well in the context of the local church. The elders are called to pour themselves into the life of the church and the people of God. There is a generous giving of self. There are sacrifices that must be made to lead well as an elder or pastor in the life of the church. Paul says, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready, I love this, to share with you not only the gospel of God. It is easy in one sense to simply speak and share truth with somebody, isn't it? It's one thing to share truth with somebody. It's another thing, quite another thing, to share your entire life with them. And Paul says, not only do we share with you the gospel of God, which is the most precious truth on earth, I shared with you how you could have salvation in Jesus Christ, how you could have life eternal and everlasting, how your sins can be completely forgiven, how you could be set free. I shared with you the most loving truth that humanity could possibly know and understand. But beyond that, I shared with you the display of the gospel itself in my life. I gave myself to you. I poured myself into you for your good, for your upbuilding. He says, we shared our own selves. Why? Why do you pour yourself in? Because, he says, you had become very dear to us. You see, he loved them so much. And the more, I think this is reciprocal, the more you pour yourself into somebody, the more your heart expands with love and affection for that individual. And where you withhold yourself, so too your heart shrinks in love and affection for that individual. This picture is so, so beautiful. Giving generously is required of those who are going to love the flock and lead well. It is a a role that is essential for an elder or pastor, an overseer in the life of the church. Third thing here is this, urge diligently. 
To truly love somebody is to urge them diligently towards what is right, what is healthy, and what is good. It is unloving to not share with somebody the truth that will protect them and that will help them. It is unloving to flatter somebody and tell them what they want to hear, and it is incredibly loving and gracious to tell somebody what they at times don't want to hear but need to hear. And I I think in one sense we have that picture here in verse 11, for you know, he says, how like a father with his child, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It's this picture of a father who looks at his child and realizes, I'm not gonna be with you forever. My window with you is short, and I want you to make the most of this life. I want you to become the man or the woman that God has designed and created you to be, and sometimes that's gonna require me to push you, to urge you, to challenge you, to encourage you to do what is right. To urge diligently is to love the flock. And this too is required of elders. It is a part of the role. Love requires a strength of conviction that diligently points others towards what matters most. Love cares not just for the present and current circumstances. It is concerned and cares for the soul and for the things that are eternal. And if I could just maybe add in one more verse, look at verse 13. You want to love well, pray regularly. Paul just simply throws this out as if it's a given in one sense. He says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You know, prayer helps to establish a deep love in your heart for others. You see, you pray for those you love, and you love those you pray for. It is the loving thing to lift others up to the Lord, to thank God for people, but to pray for their spiritual well-being. And so here we just learn a few things from the Apostle Paul and from this imagery of a mother and father, and there's so much more that could be said, but just note this, the elder's primary role is to love the flock. It's to love the flock of God that he purchased with his own blood. But what is the church's responsibility to this role, to the elders in this way? If if the elders are called to love the people of God, what is the people of God's responsibility towards the elders? Well, I think you can imagine it's not going to be too different. In fact, look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. You can turn to it or it's going to be on the screen behind me, but here's what Paul says to the church in in Thessalonica. He says this, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and here it is here, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. There is a reciprocal kind of love that needs to take place in the body of Christ as the leadership of the church seeks to care for your soul and to love you in a variety of different ways, you too are to esteem and to love them in the Lord. And I just 
You say, well, what, what is that flavor then of the church supposed to look like? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a body? And by the way, this is so much describing us, I believe, a, a body that is loving each other so faithfully, so constantly, right, through thick and thin, wrestling through issues, striving to be at peace amongst one another. Can you imagine what that kind of church would look like? The Apostle Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. This is not a marriage passage, primarily. This is a church passage. And he says this, he says, just listen to the words, love is patient. Think about the culture of the church. Love is patient, it is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way and it's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, and it endures all things. This is the body of Christ that God is wanting to cultivate here at our church. This is what he wants the ethos, the flavor, the feeling of this church to be. A church is healthiest and strongest where there is a mutual love for one another taking place and the elders of the church are called to lead the way. Lead the way, love the flock. Secondly, I want you to note this, the elders' requirement, live the faith. The elders' requirement is to live the faith. Flipping your Bibles forward to 1 Timothy, right after 2 Thessalonians there, 1 Timothy chapter 4. The elders are required to be examples. And actually, Paul has just hit on this in, in a sense in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He said the, these words, just listen to them again. You don't, don't turn back there, just listen to what he says. He said that you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul says to Timothy, again, the, the young man who was pastoring this church in Ephesus, the young man that he had identified as a future elder, as a future leader in the church, and he says in verse 12 of chapter 4, he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Timothy was a young man, and there are many who are looking down their nose at him, thinking maybe he was too young to be in ministry, and Paul says, don't worry about that. Your age is, is inconsequential in one sense. What is required of you is a level of maturity. It's that you exemplify what it looks like to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ. And in one says that has very little to do with your age. Just drop down to verse 16 for a second. He tells him to keep a close watch on yourself, he says. He's talking about your life here. Examine your life, inspect your life. Make sure that your life is measuring up to the standard so that you can be an example to the flock. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It is so essential that you exemplify a godly, righteous, holy life. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. He says, I, I beat my body, I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. I, I don't want to lose the prize here. I don't want people to abandon the faith or walk away because I have somehow preached one thing and then lived entirely different. 
on the screen here behind me, Acts 20, 28. He says this over and over. Just catch how vital and how important this is. Pay careful attention. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Note there the order. Pay careful attention first to yourself. You can't lead and you can't oversee effectively if you're not guarding your own heart and your own life, if you're not walking in holiness and in purity before the Lord. This is a non-negotiable requirement of elders. It is what you as a church should expect from your leadership. Paul in verse 12, we're going to look at that for a minute here in those five areas that he identifies. You'll notice there's five there. The best way to interpret these five requirements is to really look at the qualifications that Paul laid down for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In one sense, these five things, kind of broadly speaking, sweep all of those requirements for eldership in and underneath this umbrella. And just, just let's, it, would do us, it would serve us well just to look at those briefly. So let's just go to 1 Timothy 3. It is good for you as a church to have an understanding of what the life of an elder ought to look like. And here, Paul lays out these requirements. Nobody is fit for the office of an elder and for the role of a a pastor in the church unless their life is modeling these things. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, same term, elder, pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. We're not going to dig into all of those, but let's just back to chapter 4, verse 12. Look at these one at a time. You'll notice that here Paul calls Timothy to set an example in terms of his speech. That's the first area. You know, we all sin more readily with our tongues than any other part of our body. Our tongue can do more damage than we sometimes realize, can't it? Some of us know all too well what that is like. With our tongue, we can tear down or we can build up. Our tongue can be a devastating weapon or it can be a helpful tool. The Word of God calls those in any spiritual leadership to not be quarrelsome or quick-tempered, to exercise self-control in all areas of their life, and that especially pertains to their tongue. They should be thoughtful with their words, with their language. They should be edifying others with their speech. They should be truthful with how they speak. And they should be gracious and gentle in the way and manner in which they communicate with others. You see, what we say as leaders in the church should be healing and not bruising. He then goes on to talk about conduct. 
This word can be translated as your life or your lifestyle in general. The general flavor of your life should be an example to others. Holiness and uprightness should characterize your life. Paul says that in Titus 1 verse 8. Loving what is good, hating what is evil, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, making no provision for the flesh. In one sense, I think the best way to understand this is that any leader's private life ought to match their public life. And that's essentially what character is. Character is who you are when nobody else is looking. The conduct or life of an elder needs to be driven by a desire to know Jesus Christ more. In everything the leader does, he ought to be striving to give glory to God. In everything he does, he he should be striving to know him and to make him known. He needs to be known for doing what is right, both in the church and outside of the church. He ought to be a man who is living to please God and not man. He ought to have a life that demonstrates godliness, not worldliness. He should be a man who is not a lover of money or the things that it can buy, but a man who loves the giver of all good gifts and stewards those gifts wisely. The lifestyle of an elder should bear the evidence of our heavenly citizenship, indicating where our treasure truly lies, what we do with our time, what we watch on television, how we shepherd our families and manage our own households well, all of this is wrapped into this understanding of setting an example in conduct. He then goes on to love, and we've talked about love already in the first point, so I won't belabor that, but the idea, again, just displaying itself in gentleness and self-control and humility and hospitality and just broadly speaking in care for others. He says he must set an example next in faith. He says to be an example of faith, and that means, I think, twofold, in the knowledge of the faith, holding firmly to the trustworthy word as has been taught, constantly growing in the knowledge of the faith, the things of the Lord, the word of God, and constantly growing in its proper application to daily life. You see, it must be more than just a deeper understanding of the faith. It must be an ever-increasing example of living the faith, of living with confidence in Jesus Christ, of trusting God in all circumstances, being a model of what it looks like to have contentment in Jesus Christ, regardless of your circumstances, trusting Him in everything, at all times, giving thanks. And lastly, He says, be an example, Timothy, in purity. Timothy, as you pastor this church, you set an example in all of these things, and and he ends with purity, and so crucial. Listen, in the broadest sense, purity, purity of life, holiness of life, being set apart from sin in every regard, certainly in sexual purity and immorality. It must not be named amongst you. Behavior that is above reproach, and the purity of life that begins with the purity of heart. Robert Murray McShane, the godly minister who died when he was only 29 years old, before his death wrote profoundly on a number of different topics. He once made these profound statements about an elder's life. He said, first, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. 
He said, secondly, this, how awful a weapon in the hand of God is a holy minister. People of God need an example of what it looks like to be godly, to be holy. And listen, no elder and no pastor is going to do that perfectly. That is for sure. But there is to be a growing sense of when you look at an elder's life. You know, I love what Paul says to Timothy, even in the same passage, let your progress be made known to all. Let them see you growing in holiness and the way you handle the word of God, right? Nobody's arrived yet, not even an elder or a pastor of the church. But there needs to be a, an example The New Testament places a great stress upon character as a qualification for spiritual leadership, even more so in some senses than the gifting. Listen, the gifting for leadership is essential. Nobody is qualified who's not also gifted by the Lord for the role, but there is a greater weight placed upon the character of the individual. It is a wise Christian who prays, listen church, it is a wise Christian who prays that God would always grant character that is greater than gifting. There are many, many gifted individuals who have been rendered useless in the life of the church because of a lack of character. Shortcomings in gifting are easily forgiven when abundance of character is easily seen. Let me say that again. That's really important. Shortcomings in giftedness will be easily forgiven when an abundance of character is easily seen. You say, well, as a church, what, what's our responsibility? Okay, the elders are supposed to set an example. What, what does that mean for me? Well, I, I think that should be pretty clear as well, right? An example is there by definition to be followed. In fact, listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 7. It should be on the screen behind me there. He says, remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Follow the example in as much as your leaders look like Jesus Christ. And there are ways in which they won't and ways in which they are striving to grow, but as much as they are looking like Christ and showing you what it means to live a life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as much as possible, look to them and try to model your life in a healthy way after what they do. It's not a different standard for leaders. That's important to understand here as a church. God isn't saying the leaders must be uh, hyper, super Christians, and they have a certain standard that they're called to. They're not a different standard. Every Christian is called to the same standard of Christian living. They are called instead to a different level of accountability before the Lord. With greater responsibility comes greater accountability. And that's what is really being pressed into the elders of the church. You must model what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Christ. And I will hold you, God says, responsible for the way in which you modeled me to my people. It's a different accountability. That's because of this next point, the elders' responsibility to lead the way. There is a great responsibility placed upon the shoulders and backs of the elders to lead the way in the life of the church. And I want you to flip in your Bibles forward to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, very familiar passage in relating to elders in the church. Peter 
writes these words. I'll just read the first couple of verses for now. Peter writes this, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And he says these words, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Elders in the New Testament context were not to be mere figureheads. They had real responsibility. They were leaders in the life of the church. They were pace setters. They were disciple makers. And scripture sees elders as competent, committed, mature leaders. They're called to exercise oversight. Those words are crucial in this passage. It speaks to the details of pastoral care, the details of shepherding and caring for souls. See, what are those details? Let me just give you kind of a sampling of what the Word of God says. I'm just going to run through these. I'll, t- I'll tell you the scriptures, but don't turn there. Just listen. Here's some of the things that are said about the responsibility of elders to lead in the life of the church. They are called, uh, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. They're called, in 1 Timothy 5, 17, to rule well. They're called to guard sound doctrine, in Titus 1, verse 9. They're called to do the work of evangelism, in Titus 1, verse 8. They're called to deal with difficult people in Titus 1, 10 through 14. They're called to raise up other leaders in, t- in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. It's just a small sampling, listen, of the responsibilities of the elders and leaders of the church. These responsibilities of eldership may actually be summed up, in a sense, under one broad heading, and, and that's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. The one thing that differentiates a deacon from an elder is this. Aside from character is a competency, an ability. They must be able to teach. They must be able to teach. And that is where we are reminded of the greatest responsibility of the leadership of the church. They herald the truth of God's word. They stand, in one sense, as mediators between God and his people and declare, thus saith the Lord. This is the truth of God's word. This is why in James chapter 3, verse 1, again on the screen, I believe, behind me. I think I gave it back there. No, I'm getting a no. It's not going to be on the screen. So just listen to the the words. That's my fault. Um, Listen to what it says in James 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians in the life of the church. We will stand before God as those who teach the word of God, especially in a formal sense. Those who teach the word of God will have to stand before God and they will be held responsible by God, not only for what they themselves believed, but for what they helped others to believe as well. That is a massive, massive weight. And James says to the church, hey, don't be quick to run towards a teaching ministry, okay? You're gonna stand and answer to God for that. With greater responsibility comes greater accountability to the Lord. And this, by the way, this idea of being able to teach does not mean that every elder must be a public preacher. Not everybody has to do the role of standing behind a pulpit week in and week out and publicly preaching the word of God. That's that's not necessarily what this text means. It's broader than that. 
It does mean that every elder in the life of the church, every pastor needs to be able to aptly handle the word of God. They must have a deep working knowledge of the word of God. They must be able to instruct others with clarity and conviction. They must be able to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. They must be able to rightly handle the word of truth, to not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God, to in season and out of season preach the word of God in whatever context God allows. And church, Family, it is vital, it is vital that you understand the responsibility that has been placed on the back of the elders and that you understand your responsibility. It is right that you hold the elders accountable to rightly handling the word of truth. It is right that you don't just take it uh, and, and never question it. It is right that you expect to be in a church where the word of God is handled with care and precision and applied to your life and not trifled with or fooled around with as if it was meaningless or inconsequential. It is right for you to expect that. And it's right that you understand your responsibility, therefore, if you are in a church where the word of God is being applied to your life, in whatever context, whether it be from up here at the front, whether it be when somebody brings the word of God to you in a small group context, a one-on-one discipleship meeting, whatever that may be, you, as somebody who is exposed to the truth, listen, where you know more truth, there is likewise greater responsibility to adhere to the truth, and therefore greater accountability to God for what you do with the truth. Hebrews 13, 17, this one I promise you will be on the, tech, on the screen behind me. So what's my responsibility if, if my church is, is preaching the word and it's healthy and the leadership are striving to love and honor and care for my soul? Listen, this is what the author of Hebrews says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping, listen, listen to the weight of responsibility here. This is, this, is, this is as serious as it gets in the word of God. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You don't want cranky elders, trust me. But you, can, you just, can, you see, can you just see what God says about the weight and, and the responsibility for the leadership of the church? They will one day, listen, I, I take this so seriously. I will one day, along with the other men who lead so faithfully in this church, will one day stand before the living God and he will not just ask me how I, Ian, how did you shepherd your family? How did you shepherd your own soul? I mean, listen, as a parent, think about the, the language of a parent. Being responsible for yourself is one thing. Being responsible for little lives around you, that's an entirely different thing, isn't it? It's like, man, that's weighty. I'm going to give an account to the Lord. Can you imagine you had 600 kids? And I don't mean that in any kind of condescending way. I just, I mean that with all seriousness that, that I, uh, we will be held responsible for how we've shepherded and cared for your soul in a variety of different ways. I'm sure in ways that I'm still yet unaware and I will still have to grow in. But there is a sense in which you need to see your responsibility. There is a responsibility in your part to Obey and submit to the leaders, really that's saying this, to trust your leaders, to respond to the truth that they present to you when they present it to you. And it's not about them, it's not about us. You know, we're just trying to hold out the word of God to you. Lord forbid it ever be about us and how you, you know, respond. It's not like that, it's, it's about how you respond to the word of God. There is to develop in the church, I trust, and this works both ways, a deep trust and respect and honoring and caring and loving relationship. 
don't make it unnecessarily hard on the leaders of the church who are trying to lead you. That's in one sense what the author of Hebrews is saying as well. Listen, we want Rowan, as we're installing him today, to be able to do this job with great joy, right? And without complaining. Because one of the policies is that as a new elder, you have to handle all the complaints in the church. So we just want him to be cared for. He just found that out right now, so... Third John, verse 4, listen, one of the sweetest, I think, you know, John, John writes with such love for the body of Christ, and one of the sweetest things he says, and I, I just, I've, I've always, this has always impacted me greatly uh, as a leader in the church. He says that there is no greater joy for me than to know that my children are walking in the truth. You say, how can I honor that leadership of the church? How can I honor the Lord best? Listen, be somebody who loves the truth of God's word and who takes it and who's hungry for it and takes it and does something with it for the glory of God. There's no greater joy for any pastor, for any elder, for any leader, for any parent, if you're a parent, right, to hear that your children are walking in the truth. If you want to honor the Lord in this way, if you want to follow in the example of the leaders, then do this. Strive to be a mature disciple of Jesus Christ. Pour yourself into it. There's nothing, nothing greater, no no more joy in the heart and life of the the leadership of the church than to see a people who want to worship Christ, who want to walk with Christ, and who want to work for Christ with everything they have. And by the way, that'll bring your heart and your soul and your life so much more joy and satisfaction too. There's a great responsibility. There's a great weight upon the leadership and upon the body of Christ. We're all in this together. But notice, lastly, this is why we need this. The elders' reliance look to Jesus. And just really quickly, I want to read uh, verse 3 here in chapter 5 of 1 Peter And then I want to launch into Mark 10 for a second, but he says this, he says, in your shepherding, not to be domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and when he, the chief shepherd, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You can flip to Mark 10 for a minute. That idea there of not domineering, doesn't that sound like so much of the leadership in the world? The world's default model of leadership is about being served. It's a hierarchy with the leader at the top. Followers serve the will of the leader. They fulfill the desires of the leader. They further the interests of the leader. It's selfishly driven in so many different contexts. Power hungry. This is the kind of paradigm that the world presents. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus' disciples get a lesson in leadership. And they had been apparently schooled in the paradigm of the world, you see, because James and John come up to Jesus and they start jockeying for a position in the kingdom when Jesus brings his kingdom. And and Jesus, you know, can one of us sit at your right and one of us sit at your left? And the others are indignant. And before you're quick to say, well, they were just thinking, how dare those guys? You know, the problem was this, they asked before them. They got there first. 
That their mindset was, was what, what kind of position can we hold? What kind of place of power can we have? We want to place at the top with you, Jesus. And then Jesus, he turns this conventional, worldly thinking upside down on them. He introduces to them a whole new paradigm of leadership. In verse 42 of, John, of chapter 10, he says this, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's that domineering idea. They lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus here prescribes for his disciples the kind of leadership that they ought to practice And he also describes what he himself has come to do. He's really telling them to be the kind of leader that he is. He expects his followers to be servant leaders, to model humility. And as the chief servant, he will himself, as he says in this passage, give his life as a ransom to deliver us from the kind of selfish leadership that so often captivates our hearts to free us to become Christ-like servant leaders. And so the call here is to look specifically to Jesus. He is to be the one we rely upon. And I just have three simple ways that we are called to look to Jesus, especially as leaders, but for every follower of Jesus Christ, that this applies to every single one of us whom God has called to himself. The first is this, look to Jesus as our pattern. Look to Jesus as his pattern. Jesus is our model, and nobody was a servant leader better than Jesus. He says this in John 13. He says, if then you, Lord, I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. So if I could speak to the elders even of our church, or those of you who aspire to be elders or future leaders in any regard in this church, just let me... Let me speak to you. Listen, get rid of the worldly forms of leadership that exist to further self. Just get them out of your heart. Get them out of your mind and embrace instead a servant form of leadership, the servant leadership of Jesus Christ, the kind of leadership that is good, true, and beautiful. Commit to it and commit to studying Jesus in every regard to increase your effectiveness as a leader in the church. One of your primary tasks is to follow Jesus so closely and uncompromisingly that you provide a clear and powerful example for your fellow believers to follow. Every one of us will have, if we're a follower of Christ, have people looking to us in some way to lead them. Let Jesus be your pattern. Secondly, look to Jesus as our provision. Look, as we follow Jesus, don't you find this, the the closer you get to Jesus, the closer you get to the light of the gospel, the clearer you begin to see yourself and all of your faults and all of your blemishes. Even as you grow in Christ, right, the closer you draw to Christ at that blazing light, the perfect, beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ, the closer you get to his perfection, the more and more you're inclined to see how imperfect, how blemished you really are, how broken, how sinful, how selfish you can really be. 
And you begin to realize that Jesus' way of leading is really, in one sense, completely impossible. It goes against the grain of our selfish, sinful hearts. We want, deep down in our flesh, don't we? We want power. We want control. We want comfort. We want ease. We want convenience. Our sinful hearts love that. We want to be liked. We want to be needed. We want to be appreciated. We want to do what works for us. We want to be served rather than serve. This is why the provision of the gospel is so foundational to Christian leadership and to Christian living. Because as our sin is so, so exposed, listen, God's grace is exposed even more. To flawed and fallen leaders and Christians, the gospel proclaims, rejoice, Jesus has come to redeem you. He's not just our model, he is our mediator. He is the perfect provision that we so desperately need. The Son of Man came to serve a selfish, think about this, greedy, flawed leaders and people like you and me. He died for us that we might live for him. And our hope is not in our excellent servant leadership. May we never place our hope or faith in how well we serve May our hope be found in Jesus' perfect servanthood toward those who acknowledge their lack and their need. We need to look to Jesus daily as our provision, grace for today, because lastly, he is our power. We must look to Jesus as our power. We must learn to rely on him. You see, when weak people depend on a strong savior, he does not just forgive their sins, he empowers them with his renewing grace. The Bible uses the metaphor of pouring to describe how generous God gives his Holy Spirit to his people through Jesus Christ. Titus 3, verses 5 and 6, he pours his spirit upon us so bountifully and generously. Look, whatever you lack, the spirit has. Whatever you need, the spirit can provide. You will be the best servant leader when you acknowledge regularly your struggles with servanthood. Why? Because then you will constantly go to Christ for fresh strength. That's what God calls us to, a fresh strength, an ever-increasing dependence upon him. Gospel leadership is servant leadership, and servant leadership drives us back to the gospel. We must look to Jesus, every single one of us, to be the followers of him that he has called us to be and to be used in whatever capacity he's called us to serve. Paul warned specifically in relation to Timothy and to others in the church that They were not to lay hands on any man too quickly. The laying of hands is symbolic of affirmation and appointment to a position, but more than that, to a task. The task of shepherding the flock of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I want to invite our elders to come to the front, and I want to invite Rowan Fraser as well to come on up here. And it's our joy this morning to lay hands on him to affirm and appoint him to the office of the elder. We have found him faithful, meeting the qualifications of the elder found in God's word with the desire to shepherd the flock of God and to oversee it faithfully. And we want to ask you as our church family to join us as we pray for Rowan. I'm going to ask a couple of our elders to pray for him as we lay hands on him. Pray with us. Pray for Rowan specifically. Pray for his family as they serve alongside him in this capacity. And pray, I hope you see the connection to the strength and health of the life of our church. Pray that God continues to bless our church as we add and we see God bringing more faithful, godly leaders to help shepherd the flock of God, his flock. 
We're praising God this morning that he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we're asking him together as a church family for much grace and much strength in the matter. I'll ask Brian to pray for us as we lay hands. Lord God in heaven, we bow before you, exalting one name and one name alone this morning. That is the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, he is the one who deserves all glory and all praise and all honor. And yet you raise up others, Lord. You raise up men to lead your church. And and it is right for us to pray and give you thanks, Lord, for such men. And, And we consider Rowan this morning. We lift him up to you. God, looking at his life, looking at how you have worked in him so clearly and evidently. First, to bring him to yourself through, through opening his blind eyes that he might behold the truth of his Savior, Jesus Christ, and confess. God, thank you for raising up this man, this father, this husband, this, this teacher. God, this, this man who has, has just shown so much that, that, God, you have clearly been at work in his heart. And we give you great praise for that in the name of Jesus. Father, we, we are excited. And we are thankful for the work that you are doing in growing your church, and specifically your church here. We thank you, Lord, for having brought to us Ron. And Lord, for the call that you have made on his life to be an under-shepherd here. And Father, we just want to commit him to you, knowing that it is in your strength, in your power, that he will be able Lord, to serve in this role to your glory and to your honor. Father, I pray that you would make him a man who will be ever growing in his love for you. Lord, wanting nothing more than to honor you. Lord, that he would be growing in his love for your people, and especially the people here in this church. Lord, that his desire will be to see growth and godliness in his own life and in the life of others. Lord, make him a man who loves your word and wants nothing more than to be fed by it, to know it, and Lord, to preach and proclaim it in every every opportunity he has. Lord, we thank you for having brought him here, and Lord, I pray that he would serve with joy, Lord, with, with joy of heart and 
Lord, I even thank you for his dear wife, Joy. And I pray, Lord, that he would serve with her in this role. Lord, that she would be a great means of support to him as a godly wife. And Lord, that together as they lead their family, their children, Lord, that they would be an example. And so, Father, we, as a church, to stand today to affirm what you are doing in his life. And we stand with thankfulness. And we commit Ron and his entire family to you even now. Father, thank you for what you are doing and for what you will continue to do through him and through us as a church in the building of your kingdom as we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.